0: There are three short scripture verses today that we're going to read, so you might want to follow along on the screen today. The first is from Matthew 1821 to 22. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. The second is Luke 173 to four. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. And the third, Ephesians 4 31 to 32. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender hearted forgiving one another, as God and Christ forgave you. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Amen. Thank you, Nancy. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we come today with the important issue of forgiveness in our purview. And we live in a world that has lots of hurt, lots of pain, And as varied as the pain is, is as varied as the circumstances that caused it. So, whether here in this room or in our worship too, or on podcast, I pray that, Lord, through these next moments, that you would meet people where they are. That you would create new, God-centered, Christ-exalting, Spirit-empowered categories for how to live. I pray that we would be able to reclaim back this word forgiveness. And that in doing so, we both platform the beauty of the gospel and we would know how to live out this gospel in a way that makes much of you, Lord Jesus. And is a captivating call for lost people to see what they could have if they would but turn and receive Christ. So, Lord, I want my words today as a pastor to my beloved congregation to be helpful. And so I pray that you would make them that pray that you would apply your word where it needs to be applied with balm and help and salve and ointment. And Lord, where you want to create some new categories and maybe challenge our thinking in some arenas, I pray that you do that gently and carefully. And we ask this for the name and the glory of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Last week we looked at the very important and relevant subject of forgiveness, and I walked you through Matthew 18. In regards to this scenario that Peter gives to Jesus of how often should I forgive my brother, seven times. And then Jesus responds, no, up to 70 times seven. And the call of my sermon and the tenor of that text was to help you understand and embrace and feel the full beauty of what it means to having been forgiven to then to forgive others. And the point that I was driving at last week is this, that only the forgiven can really, truly forgive. In other words, what Jesus is calling us to here is to understand the depth of the debt that we have owed to God, and that in light of the shadow of the cross, that we would then know how to deal with other people and to treat them in a way that fits with this shadow of the cross. In the course of that sermon, I was trying to help you understand the enormity of what Jesus is saying and even the um, abundance of graciousness that Peter is suggesting when he says up to seven times. And I was trying to help you understand that so that you know that when Peter's talking about forgiveness, he's talking about forgiveness in the context of somebody in Luke 17 coming and saying, I repent, and then you forgive them, and then seven times. So the idea here is not just some um, emotional distance, well, I've just forgotten about that, I've just forgiven that, whatever that is, from a distance. We're talking about a generosity and a graciousness that implies repentance at the core. So this is a a, a varsity-level, big-time forgiveness that Peter is talking about. T- to make that point, I gave you a phrase last week, and that is this, that forgiveness is conditional, or... The notion of conditional forgiveness. And one of the joys of doing a pulpit ministry week to week is that you never teach in a vacuum. Uh, whatever you say, people have, they have real lives and real folks. And In fact, uh, Jim Greer, my mentor, once said, Mark, it's always hard to do good theology in front of a crying woman. And uh, what he he meant by that is, know what you believe, because when you get in the context of church ministry, there are real people with real issues and complicated scenarios. And um, what's a joy about this is the fact that there's real people who have real questions with real struggles, and most of them have email that works really well. And so over the last week, I've received some great questions. And as I read those questions, and that's that's part of the joy of being in pastoral ministry, is just seeing what's going on in people's lives, I came to realize that I need to fully unpack this notion of forgiveness and what I mean by conditional forgiveness, because I really want to be helpful and, and want to help you think through some things and to address some really important questions. Because I know that in a hurting world, we all have to deal with this issue. So this morning, I'm going to attempt to answer some questions like, how is conditional forgiveness biblical and unconditional not? Uh, Doesn't conditional forgiveness lead to bitterness? Uh, Aren't we commanded to forgive everyone? And didn't Jesus pray on the cross for forgiveness for his persecutors? And these are great questions. Questions, frankly, I've been answering for uh, 16 years of pastoral ministry. And so I knew very well that that phrase might create a category and some tension for some of you in your minds. And today I hope to be able to resolve some of that and give you some help as to what do you do and how do we reclaim this word forgiveness. And I know full well that we're not just talking about an academic issue, a theological issue or a biblical issue, I'm talking about a deeply personal issue. And so therefore, I want to walk carefully and biblically and try and give us all some help as to what this word forgiveness really means. So with that, let's start with just a, a definition. And just so you know, think of this sermon today as the application of all that we talked about last week. So that last week was part one, and this week is part two. So having done all of that exposition, I want to just kind of take a step back and help you understand how this has worked out. So there are primarily four words that are used for um, forgive or forgiveness, either the verb or the noun form. There's three that are verbs and one that's a noun. The first word is the word afime, and it's used in Matthew 6 in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And that word means to send away to send away. Another word is the word apaluo from Luke chapter 6 and verse 37. And that word means to loose or to release, to let go. The noun form is aphasis, which means a dismissal or a release. And so you see all three of those, it's a very similar nuance, a similar meaning. And then the fourth word is an unusual one, not used very often. It's used in Ephesians four, thirty two, and Colossians two and verse thirteen, the word charizomai, and it means to bestow grace. So you put those three words and that one word together, and what you get is this sense that forgiveness is the act of clearing away an offense such that a person is treated in a way that they don't deserve. So it's a clearing away of an offense, and they're treated in a way that they don't deserve. And I think that these three words and this one word both look at forgiveness, but they look at it from a different angle. Now, the first three words look at it from the angle of the clearing away of the offense and the Choridzomai looks at it as the effect of the clearing away, of treating someone in a way they don't deserve. There's a number of good books on forgiveness. There's a great one recently written by Chris Brauns called Unpacking Forgiveness. And in that book, he gives this definition. Forgiveness is a commitment by the offended to pardon graciously the repentant from moral liability and to be reconciled to that person Although not all consequences are necessarily eliminated. There's a lot of really important things within that definition and this helps us to get a starting point, but we need to go much deeper and begin with what is divine forgiveness because if you remember Ephesians 4:32 says that we are to forgive as God in Christ has forgiven us and so what we need to do is start with what is God's standard of forgiveness because there's no human forgiveness apart from God's forgiveness and our forgiveness is to be modeled after his so therefore we got to start with how has God forgiven us so let's look at that next To understand divine forgiveness, we have to understand what the problem is. And the problem is sin. I know that that seems very basic, but it's remarkable to me how many people do not start with sin when they talk about the matter of forgiveness. Instead, they start with things like bitterness or resentment. Now hear me, as we'll say over and over in our message this morning, Um, Bitterness and resentment are never to be tolerated They're not supposed to be the part of the life of a believer But they are not the starting ground of forgiveness Sin is Bitterness and resentment are the fruits of an unforgiving spirit But sin is the reason why forgiveness is even in the universe The only reason why forgiveness is even part of our vocabulary Is because sin is a part of our world For instance um, sin created separation in the Garden of Eden. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 24. Remember after Adam and Eve sinned, God banished them. There was separation between them and God. He banished them out of the Garden. Romans 6 tells us that the effects of sin, the wages of sin, is death. a Physical separation. Every time we go to a funeral, it is a very stark reminder that sin has a penalty. And that penalty is separation. And as well, that's not the only separation. There's ultimate separation because of sin in hell. Revelation 20 verse 15 identifies that there is an ultimate place of eternal separation. And the definition of hell is not just simply the fire and the torment, but what makes hell hell is separation from God. And in that respect as well, what heaven is, is no longer separation from God, but intimacy and fellowship with Him. So what you need to know first is that forgiveness is only in the universe because of the presence of sin. And and my hope today is I've prayed for you and prayed that I would do well in terms of presenting these biblical truths to you. My, My prayer is that you would leave today and you would have this thought, God, I hate sin I hate what sin does. I hate how it divides. I hate how it gets in. I hate sin. I can't wait till you come and remove all sin away when there's no more sermons about forgiveness. There's no more talking about resentment. No more things about bitterness. It's all over because sin has finally been taken care of. Sin, beloved, is the problem that forgiveness seeks to solve. Secondly, forgiveness is gracious, but it is not free Forgiveness is amazingly gracious. Paul, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, says this, God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even while we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. So Paul, two times in this text, says God is rich in mercy and he's got great love. So, this rich mercy and this great love is true, but while mercy and grace have come to us, and while mercy and grace have been free to us, forgiveness was not free to God. It cost Him dearly. 1 John 4.10, In this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us, listen, and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. It's a big word propitiation. It it means that Jesus became the sacrifice, the punishment, the atonement. Propitiation means to satisfy the demands of justice. It means that in God's universe there's a demand of justice that must be met and that Christ became the propitiation. He satisfied the wrath that was demanded because of the presence of sin. So propitiation means to turn away wrath by an offering. So the effect of Christ's death means that God can satisfy the demands of justice while also being gracious. So understand, God would not be able to be gracious if the demands of justice weren't satisfied. But God can fulfill His great grace in forgiving sins while promoting still the principle of justice in that Christ paid the atonement for our sins. This is what Paul says in Romans 3, 26. So that he, God, might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. In other words, God just can't simply say, Oh, I'm sure you didn't mean it. Let's just forget about it. Let's just act as if it didn't happen. No. The divine wrath that's in regards to injustice must be fulfilled. And the beauty of the gospel is God poured all of that out on Christ. The hope of the gospel is not that the gospel is fulfilled. Free, in terms of its cost, it's free to human beings, but it costs God dearly. Now, we understand this concept of justice, I think, in our own world, in that if there was a, a Marion County judge, for instance, who, at the sentencing of a murder victim, or, or the murderer, of a murderer, rather, who had been convicted by a jury, who said to that person, well, I'm, I'm sure you feel bad about what you did, and I'm, I'm sure you, you really regret that this happened, and I know you've acknowledged that... Um, that this jury has convicted you of this crime. But the reality is, I just believe you're never going to do it again. And uh, so I'm going to set you free and be gracious. There would be an outcry of injustice in our city. You see, the reality is graciousness and justice must coexist. Otherwise, there is no grace if there is no justice. And this is what the cross is. It's the convergence of God's grace and his justice. So it's gracious, but it's not free. Here's the third one. Forgiveness is conditional. Now, I know that for some of you, this may be a very new concept, but when I unpack it, I I think that, that you'll agree. You see, some people take God's graciousness in forgiveness to mean that everyone, therefore, is forgiven, as if forgiveness is unconditional. And I would say God's love is unconditional, but His forgiveness is always conditional. In fact, I believe this is what the Bible says, that God has made a way for people to be forgiven, But that forgiveness isn't applied to them unless they confess their sin, repent, and put their faith in Christ. In other words, forgiveness, while free and available, is not activated until a person realizes the reality of their sin, turns from it, and then believes in Christ. Acts 20, verse 21 says, Testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's a little sidebar. I, I think that in our present 21st century Americanized Christianity, there's a great focus on belief and faith. But I would argue that in sometimes we've lost the whole concept of repentance. That repentance needs to be a critical part of conversion in order for that conversion to be genuine. So, repentance and faith. And, and that's why, for some of us, this idea of conditional forgiveness is just, it doesn't make sense because we've heard so much that God is love, God is love, and He is love, and He is unconditionally loving. But forgiveness is not without conditions. Otherwise, if forgiveness were unconditional, then everyone would be saved. Because then God would just simply graciously apply His grace to everyone. But there are conditions, conditions being repentance and faith. Or take John 10, or or rather Romans 10, verse 9. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Or 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So forgiveness is conditional. Now, don't panic. I'll explain all of the nuances of that in a moment. Number four, forgiveness establishes the process of reconciliation. Here is a very, very important point. And that is that forgiveness is not only about the problem of sin, it is about the hope of reconciliation. The end game of forgiveness is not emotional health. The end game of forgiveness is not personal peace, the end game of forgiveness is reconciliation. From God's perspective, the divine forgiveness that we have been given is a process of reconciling us to himself. In fact, the hope of heaven is that one day we will be fully reconciled to him. And the, the beauty of revelation is that God will come and dwell with his people and we will dwell with him and he will be our God and we will be his people. This is the ultimate beauty of reconciliation. So the end game of forgiveness is reconciliation. In fact, Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 18. If you have your Bible, turn to that passage. It's a a really important text. You could also look there in the manuscript. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. He's saying here that the ministry of reconciliation is a critical part of what it means to be a new creature in Christ. In other words, let me put it this way, the one group of people on planet Earth who ought of love, cherish, and advocate reconciliation, ought to be followers of Jesus. Because that is our hope. And we ought to know how to do that in the context of relationship with God and relationship with others. We ought to be peace lovers and peacemakers, because this is what God has done to us. And this is what Paul says in Second Corinthians five seventeen. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed. Behold, the new has come. And all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Well, ambassadors for what? Ambassadors for reconciliation. To take the beauty of what forgiveness is, the power of reconciliation, and be an ambassador for that in the world. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God for our sake. He made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So again, the whole point of the cross and why Christ became sin was in order so that our debt could be paid and so that we could be reconciled. So the end game, beloved, for forgiveness is reconciliation. Now, fifth... Forgiveness does not negate justice. Forgiveness does not negate justice. It's important to note that although gracious and mercy-filled forgiveness is a part of the teaching of Scripture, so also is this concept of justice. The cross established the possibility of forgiveness, but even after the cross, there are legitimate consequences for our sinful actions. I could cite many examples in the scriptures, but probably the most familiar would be David's sin with Bathsheba, his adulterous relationship. The effect of that was, while he was really forgiven, a child died, there was long-standing conflict in his family, and there was even rebellion in the kingdom. The point here is simply this, that sin in any form is a really, really big deal. The possibility of gracious forgiveness as available should not remove the enormous problem that sin really is. So therefore, to forgive as God has forgiven us means that we understand that sin is the problem, and separation is caused by sin, and reconciliation is the end game, and we ought to be lovers of forgiveness because we love what God has done for us, and because we have seen and tasted of the beauty of reconciliation. It means that we start from the perspective of what has God done for me through Christ and then we embrace the beauty of grace and we also see the horror of what sin does. Now, the reason why uh, I'm discussing all of this today is because I feel as though the church has lost ownership of this word forgiveness. It seems to me as though many evangelical believers have the word forgiveness more defined from cultural sources than from biblical sources, more defined from their own experience. And in the last 50 years, it seems to me that many people have adopted what I'm going to call a therapeutic definition of forgiveness. And and that is why the concept of conditional forgiveness struck some of you the wrong way. It's just like, wait a minute. And I want to help you understand what I mean by therapeutic forgiveness. I mean a view and a practice of forgiveness that sees the issue of forgiveness primarily as an emotional health issue for me. In other words, the motivation for me to forgive is because I don't want to hate people on the inside. I don't want to be angry. I don't want to have resentment. And understand resentment and hate on the inside of your heart are never a good thing to have. I'd never espouse them. And if conditional forgiveness gives you ground for that, you've missed the heart of it. So let me be clear on that. But at the same time, to start from there, I think, cause you to land in a trajectory that I think ends up removing from the heart of the scriptures what the gospel really is, and we even lose what the meaning of forgiveness is all about. In the name of dealing with bitterness, we've overcorrected. Let me show you. Here's a comparison between the two. On the left is therapeutic forgiveness, on the right, biblical forgiveness. This is in the sermon notes. You can get it online or out in the foyer as you leave. Don't try and write this down. Just just listen and, and just meditate on this. On the left, forgiveness is a feeling. It is ceasing to feel resentment or bitterness. On the right side, forgiveness is a commitment to pardon the offender. On the left, forgiveness is private or individual. It's primary in activity, primarily an activity that goes on within individual persons, hearts, and minds. Versus forgiveness is something that happens between two parties. So you can see even early that the therapeutic forgiveness really takes me and it makes it about me. And it it really focuses on my feelings and kind of where I'm at. Next, forgiveness is unconditional. It should be granted regardless of whether or not the offender is repentant. Whereas biblical forgiveness is conditional upon repentance. Here's the challenge. In Matthew 18, we, we just heard the text on church discipline. And the question really needs to be asked, if forgiveness is unconditional, then on what basis does the church have to do church discipline? After all, then, shouldn't we just forgive offenses and just simply say we've forgiven? With an unconditional forgiveness model, church discipline, holding the repentant to their sin and saying there is separation between us because of this issue would have no basis and no grounds. And so that's why I think these two texts are put sandwiched together to help us understand both the justice and the mercy of God in the community of faith. Next, forgiveness is primarily motivated by self-interest. You should forgive others for your own sake to be free from hate. Again, let me say for the third time, no justification for internal bitterness, resentment, or hate. But at the same time, if you start from there, it will birth some very strange practices that may sound spiritual, but I'm not sure that they are. And then biblical forgiveness is motivated by love for neighbor and love for God. It is for God's glory and our joy. Next, a standard of justice is not critical. This is so important. It is about how the person feels. Therefore, you can legitimately choose to forgive someone who had not done anything wrong. Here's what happens, is that people, when they define um, hurts and offenses by their own standard, they're hurt and offended, and then they forgive people who they have no basis to forgive them. And the reason is is because nothing wrong actually happened. And the effect of that is a very strange view of forgiveness. Justice is the basis of forgiveness. You cannot legitimately forgive someone if he or she has not done anything wrong against God's standards. And let me ramp this up even further. This could actually put a person in a position where they begin to think they're really righteous when in fact they ought to repent. They use words that I have forgiven them when the fact is they've got no basis to even make that kind of statement. Here's an illustration. In my last church, as a part of our ministry, we had a school. And one of the things connected with that school is we had a dress code. And that was one of my least favorite discussions to get involved in. And uh, every year we had to wrestle with that dress code. And and one year we made a pretty big change from a pretty conservative dress code to one that I felt was both modest but more culturally aware. In the context of some discussions with some people in our church, one man... Said this, well, it doesn't matter anyway. I've forgiven the school board for making those changes. And I thought to myself a number of things at that moment some things that I never said that I wanted to say, and these things that I think probably needed to be said. I thought to myself, first of all, I don't remember us asking you forgiveness. Secondly, we didn't do anything wrong. And third, the reality is, the essence of the problem is your legalism that now you've put in the banner of being spiritual by forgiving us, and the fact is, you should repent because you're the one who's sinning. (laughs) But I didn't say that. (laughs) But you see the problem, and that is, there's there's some of you that you are so easily offended, and then you think in your heart, I've just forgiven them, I've forgiven them, I've forgiven them, and the problem is, you never stop to think, should you even be offended should, should you, and, and when you become the definer of right and wrong and the definer of hurts, and just, if your feelings are the central reality of what motivates forgiveness, that becomes a really strange and difficult scenario to be able to work out biblically. Rather, justice is the basis of forgiveness. You can't legitimately forgive someone if he or she has not done anything wrong against God's standard. And finally, forgiveness can happen apart from reconciliation whereas biblical forgiveness is inextricably connected to reconciliation. I'll say more on this in a moment. Now, the implications of this, I think, are very significant, and I just want to tell you why this is a big deal. In the therapeutic model, it makes the main focus of forgiveness me and my hurts, not the problem of sin. In fact, I was having a conversation with Don Helton, our pastor of student ministries, and he told me that um, there was a survey that was done um, some time ago about uh, how teenagers and young adults view um, God. And the conclusion was that teenagers now have a moralistic, therapeutic deism, which means they think God is there, but he doesn't really involve uh, moralistic. It's all just kind of what you do and therapeutic. It's really about me, how I feel, my feelings, and I become the infinite reference point of truth. And I would argue that some of that, I think, has slipped into our definition of forgiveness. That when the main focus or the main impetus for forgiveness becomes me and my hurts, sin is diminished, and in many respects, it even is defined poorly it also diminishes the importance of matthew 18 biblical confrontation and true reconciliation i've I've had many conversations with people and said look you guys need to talk this out and they say oh no no no, i've forgiven them of that years ago or i just but the reality is two parties were not on the same page and in their use of the word forgiveness they justified uh, uh, not having an important conversation that it seems as though god says we ought to have Third, it makes the ultimate definer of what is offensive and sinful to be me. It downplays the real and just consequences of unconfessed and unrepentant sin. Meaning there's some of you here who have somebody in your life and they have done you seriously wrong and they refuse to repent, they refuse to acknowledge it in the past. And this idea that somehow you're supposed to forgive them without them ever owning up to it creates an internal flag of injustice. And yet, at the same time, the Bible says that you can't be resentful or bitter. We'll talk about what you're to do in that scenario. But the fact is, if you hear you just have to forgive everyone, then what does that do to the principle of justice, especially if what happened to you was so wrong? And then finally, and most egregiously, and I have heard this, If I am the definer of what um, needs to be forgiven, and if hurts are the main motivator, and if things happen to me in life that God is responsible for that hurt me, I've heard people say, I have just learned that I needed to forgive God. And that, beloved, is just flat out heresy. God doesn't sin. To forgive God. That, and that's where I would argue the trajectory can land if we're not careful. So hopefully you see now that why this notion of, of conditional forgiveness um, has some important things for us to think through and why unconditional forgiveness, in my view, diminishes the reality and the power of what forgiveness is. I want to bring this term back into the church. I want to bring it back under the banner of how Scripture defines it, even if it creates a little bit of challenge as to, okay, how do we work these things out? Now, let me give you some pastoral reflections. Think of these as the applications from our time in the Word last week. Some things from my heart that I just want you to think about and apply. I try to make these very practical. First this, normally cover minor offenses in love. Listen, 1 Peter 4.8 says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. This means that, look, your your aim in life is not to be a professional confronter. And telling everyone how they've offended you and what they've done and how they've hurt you and how they've wounded you. Look, you of all people, if you know and love Jesus, got to know that love can cover a multitude of sins. So the normal conduct of your life is you overlook grievances. You, according to 1 Corinthians 13, you you bear all things, you believe all things, you hope all things, you endure all things. Now there's some things that that require a conversation, that require confrontation. Because it's a sin issue that's causing a separation, it's unable to be overlooked, but in have a spirit that you're willing to overlook things. In fact, I would tell you that it is incredibly Christian to overlook offenses. Be the kind of person who things just don't offend you and let those things just be covered in love. Last night, I was, went with my family to a, a supermarket in the area here and I dropped them off so they could run in quick and I, I pulled up. On the walkway, and I was watching them get out. And unbeknownst to me, a woman had taken her bags and she was walking along the uh, crosswalk area. And as I was watching my family to be sure they were safe and uh, had gotten across, I began to begin to pull out. Out uh, of the corner of my eye, I see this woman, and in, in, in she's doing this. Her hands are up, her bags are flapping. And then my wife turned and said, oh, he didn't see you. I'm sorry. And then she started jawing on my wife. Started to tell, well, he ought to look and he ought to see. And she's like all doing this stuff. So, so I rolled down my window. And I said, ma'am. And a lot of things came to my mind at that moment as to what I could say. <laughs> I mean, that's a lot of really good things and a lot of not so good things that came to my mind as to what I should say. And um, I said to her, ma'am, I'm really sorry. I'm really sorry. In fact, they even said, will you forgive me? I'm really sorry. I didn't see you there. She said, oh, of course I will. And, and, and yet her attitude was just terrible. I had gotten in her way with her bags, as if somehow this was a capital offense, right? <laughs> and, and I thought to myself, you know, I don't ever want to have one of you do that to me, not just because it would be offensive, but let's be honest. That's not a Christian attitude. To, to throw up your hands and like, you're in my way. You almost hit me. That. That's just, that's just ridiculous. But I'm not bitter, so it's... <laughs> so cover minor offenses in love. That stuff's going to happen to you all day long. Get over it, get on with it, cover it in love. Okay? Number two, always have a spirit of forgiveness. Now, to those of you who say, wait, is not conditional forgiveness mean that you then harbor bitterness and, and what about forgiveness in the heart? I would say that I'm not sure that forgiveness in the heart is the same thing that the Bible talks about when it's talking about forgiveness. Even in Mark chapter 11 where it says you standing there forgive in your heart. I think what it's referring to there is this heart orientation, a readiness to forgive, a willingness to forgive, a spirit of forgiveness. Meaning that you ought to operate in life with this willingness to be reconciled. You ought to hate sin so much that you're willing to be reconciled. But you also ought to know sin well enough and its consequences to know that sin needs to be dealt with. That's what happened at the cross. So therefore, we have to offer forgiveness to seek reconciliation. So if you've got somebody in your world that uh, you know you're at odds with or you're not talking to, The reality is you can't use unconditional forgiveness, or conditional forgiveness rather, as a justification to not go and talk to them. Actually, the reverse is true. Their unwillingness to acknowledge the sin and your knowledge about the problem of that sin means you have to go, because repentance is critical for that relationship to be reestablished. So always have a spirit of forgiveness. Number three, don't let sin drive you apart. Go and be reconciled. Unconditional forgiveness causes forgiveness from a distance without discussion, without confrontation, and without clarification. Listen, there's a reason why Matthew 18 says go one on one and then two on one. It says so that every word may be established. That means that it's highly possible that you could have been mistaken and you need another witness to verify if this is a real offense. And so Matthew 18 is there to give evidence that, yes, this is a big deal, or for your brother or sister to say, you know what, Mark, that really is not a big deal, you just need to let that go and get over it. So Matthew 18 is designed in order to help us to see that reconciliation is the aim and the goal, and that is why this particular passage on forgiveness is so closely linked to the church discipline process. Without conditional forgiveness, there is no basis of church discipline. And in fact, I would argue, if the church isn't constantly going to be reconciled, instead just simply forgiving from a distance, then people lose the opportunity to grow, they lose the opportunity to change, and we don't actually ever really deal with issues. It just sounds like it. Let me give you another illustration. When I was at my last church, there was an older man in the church named John. He was born in Poland, fought in World War II, a great man, uh, a little rough on the edges, but uh, he became my friend um, after a crisis moment. John was particularly burdened for orphans. And so his Sunday school class took an offering every week for an orphan. And I was the Sunday school teacher in that class. And uh, as it would pass the offering plate by, um, for the first number of months that I was there, I didn't put any money in the offering plate for for this orphan. And apparently John noticed and uh, took offense to that, unbeknownst to me. And in the midst of a discussion about something in the Sunday school class, John, out of nowhere, just threw in this zinger, well, what does that matter anyways? You've never given money to our orphan. And I was like, whoa, where did that come from? In front of the Sunday school class. And quite frankly, I was ticked. How dare he do that in front of this whole group? Then, so afterwards, I went and talked to John. And I said, John, what, what was that all about? And he just, he just went on and on about this. and You don't do this. And, da, da, da. and I said, look, I got to preach in a moment. I don't, I don't want to have this between us. He said, I don't care if you have to preach. And he walked and left out. So I carried this burden, preached the sermon. Afterwards, I said to my wife, "Look, honey, you go home for lunch. I got to go talk to John. I had an issue. I, I, I just, I can't. I, I got to go talk with him." She's like, "Okay." So I drove to his house, got to his part, into his uh, driveway, went to his front door, knocked. His wife, Jean, came to the door, and she looked at me like, "What are you doing here?" <laughs> and I said, "Well, I've come to see John." She's like, "He doesn't want to. He's not going to want to talk to you right now." I said, "I know that, Jean, but can I just try?" And she said. Okay, that's fine with me. He's in the basement. John had a workshop in his basement wall. He was a tool and die maker and all sorts of stuff that was down there. It was a classic basement like my grandfather used to have. I stood at the top of the stairs, and I'll never forget this. I said, John, it's Pastor Mark. And he said, I don't want to talk to you. I said, I know you don't, John. John, I love you. Long silence. Well, I love you, too. Get down here. And so <laughs> and so I walked down the basement, sat on a stool, and began to talk to John about what was going on. Turns out his sister had died two weeks ago, was filled with all kinds of pain. The issue on Sunday had nothing really to do with me. He was just upset, and he needed someone to love and care and pray for him. That, that was the... And this, I would have never known that had I just said, who cares about John? Or if I hadn't gone and tried to be reconciled to my brother. You see, that's what's on the line. So next, when you forgive, you make a promise. Ken Sandy's got a great book, The Peacemaker. In fact, he makes the same point of conditional forgiveness on page 210 and 211. In that book, he identifies that when you forgive someone, you make a promise. And it's this, you will not dwell on it, you won't bring it up, To use it against somebody, you won't talk to others about it behind their back, and you will not let this stand between us. That's what happens in forgiveness. So, parents, let me challenge you that when you ask your children to be reconciled, don't let them say, I'm sorry. Tell them, no, you need to ask for forgiveness. Same thing in your marriage. I would encourage you, sorry just means I wish that this didn't happen to you with no ownership. Forgiveness means I did something wrong, will you release me? And if you don't believe there's a difference, just try it and you'll see. That word forgive will come out more slowly than sorry or I apologize, I promise. Number five, then you begin the process of reconciliation. Forgiveness means you enter onto a path. It means that you attempt to reestablish or to bring grace into the relationship. Now, this takes time, wisdom, and discernment to know what this looks like. In some cases, reconciliation means you become really good friends. In other cases, it means that there are still appropriate boundaries and consequences. In the case of abuse... Or children that are involved that are in jeopardy, or other things in regards to addictive behavior. Forgiveness doesn't mean we just push the reset, it means we restart the relationship, but there are still boundaries and there are still consequences. Number six, pray for and be kind to the unrepentant. Here's something stunning nowhere in the Bible are we called to forgive persecutors, nowhere are we called to forgive the unrepentant, and yet we're not allowed to be bitter. Luke chapter 6 says this, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. What I want you to see is there is a powerful biblical voice in humbly identifying that this is an injustice while at the same time not granting forgiveness but instead being kind. And I would argue that what's on the line is the definition of what the gospel is. Let me illustrate this to you. Um, a while ago, I was with a, a group that meets in a house church. Um, and they were telling me a story of the fact that while they were meeting, some secret police came into their home and disrupted the meeting. And while the secret police are there taking names and numbers of all the people, the folks in their group, the host, did an, an amazingly biblical thing. She went down and fixed all of the police officers' tea. And brought up tea and said, would you like some? Would you like some? Would you like some? And in a remarkable display of loving enemies and doing kind to those who hate you or abuse you, this woman was demonstrating the essence of the gospel. But if in that moment she had said, we forgive you for doing this, what statement would they have made regarding that person's need to repent and turn to Christ? I would argue it would have minimized the heart of the gospel, but by doing good to those who were doing injustice and not offering forgiveness, it actually platformed the gospel in a phenomenally powerful way. So... This isn't just about words and nuance. I think that this is a critical issue that the church needs to buy back, to regain, to reclaim, and to help us understand the navigating the waters of this important issue. Let me boil all this down to this last point, and it's this. When you don't know what to do, or if you're just like, how do I think about this, Mark? Think of it this way. Be just like Jesus. For years, I've been discussing this issue of conditional forgiveness. And often people use the example of Jesus on the cross. And they say, well, Mark, even Jesus forgave the people who were crucifying him. But that is actually a misunderstanding of what really happened. In fact, Jesus didn't say, I forgive you. He prayed in Luke 23, Father, forgive them. What is he doing? he is identifying here the very essence of his teaching. He's praying for them. He's asking for blessing. He's praying for them. And when those who advocate an unconditional forgiveness hear this particular example, and then I ask them, so did the people who crucified Jesus, did God forgive them? What they say next betrays the inconsistency of unconditional forgiveness and verifies the importance of conditional forgiveness because they always say, well, Jesus' crucifiers, yes, would have been saved, If they received Christ Thereby giving evidence of the conditional nature of forgiveness And this is what Jesus does on the cross He blesses his persecutors He prays for those who are persecuting him And he prays, Father, forgive them So let me be clear Unconditional or conditional forgiveness Never justifies holding bitterness or resentment You are commanded to love people who persecute you You're commanded to do good to those who spitefully use you and depending on the relationship or the scenario, you've got to figure out what that looks like. That'd be, that could be as simple as simply praying for the person in your past. And you say, Lord, I choose to bless my former husband. I pray for him. I, I ask you to, to help the person who abused me in my past, even though they've never acknowledged it. And you are free because you are loving and you are gracious and you are kind. But at the same time, recognizing that what was done to you in the past was wrong. It was a great injustice. And unless that person repents, that sin is not forgiven. God holds them accountable. doesn't justify resentment. But to call it forgiveness, I think, does violence to the essence of what forgiveness is. So let me put it this way to you. When in doubt, be just like Jesus. And be just like Jesus. Be just like Jesus. And be just like Jesus. That to me is the heart of what biblical forgiveness is. Father in heaven, I pray that you'd help us to know how to have the right heart in the midst of so many hurts. Lord, my fear today is that somebody would walk out of here with a new chip on their shoulder, with new verses to justify a lack of reconciliation, and I pray that you would not let that happen. But Lord, instead, that there could be people who who learn to pray and bless for those who've hurt them, who, who learn that sin has consequences and that, God, we would just learn to hate sin in the world. And although it's complicated to, to make our way through all these passages and these nuances, Lord, we want to try because we love forgiveness. We are a forgiven people, and you have entrusted to us this ministry of reconciliation. So help us in our marriages, in our homes, in our workplaces, in our own church, to be a reconciling people. And, God, that you, by your mercy would remind us that we are the man. We're the man in that parable who's been forgiven 193,000 years of labor debt. And so help us to have a forgiving spirit. And while we're just here in a closing moment, I just want you to know that afterwards here and also in worship too, there'll be some folks available to pray with you. And if you're here today and you don't know Christ, if you've never tasted of this forgiveness, today could be the day that you say, yes, Lord, Lord, I need to taste the beauty of what it means to really be forgiven. They're here for you. Or also, if there's just a complicated scenario, you need someone to pray for you or just give you a a quick bit of advice or word, they're here to serve you as well, whether here or in worship too. So God, help us to know how to navigate the pain of life with a biblical purview and with forgiveness in our hearts. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.